Listening to Ideas on Trapped with Toby Lawson. Hello, guys, and welcome to another episode of Ideas on Trap podcast. My guest on this episode is Stefan Decon, author of the recently published and most excellent book, Gambling on Development Why Some Countries Win and Others Lose. Development scholars have produced many explanations for why some countries did better than others after the Second World War. Factors like geography, quality or type of institutions, foreign aid, and protective trade policies have been argued as what explains the divergence in national prosperity between countries. Deacon's contribution will no doubt be plugged into this long-running debate. And in my opinion, it comes closest to having a first principles explanation than anyone I have read on the subject. Other theories leave you with nagging questions like, where do good institutions come from? Are countries condemned by their histories? Why do some countries use foreign aid better than others? Why are some countries with rich geographic endowments doing worse? Why does protective trade lead some countries towards becoming industrial exporting giants and others into a macroeconomic crisis? Deacon argues that countries that have done better do so by working out a development bargain. This comes about when the people with power and influence, the elites in a country, find a cooperative agreement to consciously pursue economic development and national enrichment. Development bargains are not simple, they are often messy, and elites are not a bunch of altruistic do-gooders. Rather, through many complicated networks of intra-elite competition and cooperation, they decide to gamble on the future by betting that economic development will deliver the biggest win. Decon does not claim to have found the holy grail of development, and there are still many questions to be answered. But his argument does lead to one inevitable conclusion. Countries and their people will have to figure out what works for them and how that delivers prosperity. This and many other arguments in the book, very interesting, are the subject of my conversation with Stefan Decon. Van Deacon is the Professor of Economic Policy at Blavenick School of Government at Oxford University. He was the former Chief Economist of the UK's Department of International Development. Thank you for listening always, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Ideas on Trapped is sponsored by iInvest. iInvest is Nigeria's foremost digital platform for trading financial products like treasury bills, fixed deposit notes, commercial papers, Euro bonds, and many more. It is the leading financial services marketplace and gives you access to investment opportunities from various financial services providers within a single secure platform. Download the iInvest app on your Google Play Store 
or iOS App Store today and start investing at your convenience from anywhere in the world. Terms and conditions apply. And now, let's listen to the podcast. Was your experience really what inspired you to write the book? Well, you know, what inspired me definitely is just this, the contrast that I've had in the terms of things I do. Because I've been an academic for a long time, I have more than 30 years writing and studying. And, and, you know, I was one of these academics who like to, as one sometimes puts it, you know, like likes to get mud on their feet, you know, mud, mud on their boots. I used to work mostly on rural households. And in most countries, these are amongst the poorest people and you just get to know what's going on there. I have a policy interest and I was just lucky 10 years ago, a bit more than that. I got a job as a chief economist in the UK aid agency. And it's just that contrast of having then the chance and the opportunity to get involved on the policy side, on meeting all the more senior people. And it's just that contrast between, you know, still enjoying being surrounded by people and what they do and understand livelihoods of poorer people combined with being in the policy space I felt like, you know, I have a unique perspective that I wanted to communicate. And it was, it was just a quest to communicate, actually. If anything, I wanted just to tell more of these stories, because I think from all sides, we tend to misunderstand a lot of what's going on and how things work in practice. And that's definitely the case on the academic side. We're so far sometimes from reality that uh, I wanted to tell that story a bit more. And I mean, after uh, you read the book and uh, after publication, I presume from some of the feedback that your book is actually quite successful. Uh, I give so many copies away, right? I can't even count. Um, <laughs> I think at some point I temporarily bought out Ruben Heights' entire stock. So look, how has the reception been generally? Is it, I mean, look, what you just told me makes it much more worthwhile than if, you know, white kids in Oxford are buying the book. So what I'm really pleased with is that it appealed to a much broader group of people. And actually, you know, if I'm really honest, I hadn't expected that people like you or I was in Bangladesh last week, that young people there would actually appreciate the book, you know, that you would actually get people, you know, that think about these problems in these countries are actually interested in it. And I'm very pleased that people find it both worthwhile to read and quite interesting. Of course, I get some academics. Uh, I mean, to actually, uh, one story last week in Bangladesh, you know, I, I had a question, you know, how Lenin fits in my book. Now, I had to struggle with the answer of how Vladimir Lenin would actually fit into the book and thinking, you know, that's, that's an academic typically responding. You know, you know, I don't know. I'm not a deep theoretician, but it was written out of a kind of a pragmatic sense of what can I learn from economics and politics that actually is worthwhile communicating. You know? So it's, it's well received. And, and if I'm really honest, I don't mind that there's PDF copies circulating as well and things like that. Actually, as long as it's mm. read, you know, you, you write a book not because you want the highest sales, but you actually want it to be read. And that's actually makes it really interesting that people seem to be able to relate to it. Another group that actually I found really interesting that can relate to it is people that are either civil servants working in governments like in yours, as well as maybe eight officials and international World Bank officials, IMF officials, who actually find it helpful as well 
you know, and there's usually a huge bridge between them. You know, there's a huge gap between how in Washington they would think about these things or in London or in uh, Butcher. And so that's pleasing as well. You know, I don't give a solution to the things, but I think I touched on something of where a big part of the problem of development lies is that actually we are unfortunately in quite a few countries still with governments that fundamentally are backed by elites that don't really want to make the progress and do the hard work. And that's an unfortunate message. But at the same time, you have other countries that are surprising countries that make the progress. And clearly there is a lesson there that it's not simply like the problem is, is simple. It, actually, the problem is to some extent simple. It's about fundamentally, do you want to actually make it work, make this progress work? And I think that echoes with quite a lot of people the frustration that many of us has that some countries seem to be stuck and not making enough progress. And we need to be willing to call it out for what it is, that it's not entirely the fault of those people who are in control, but they could do far more for the better than they actually do. Mm -hmm. I mean, for the purpose of making the conversation as practical and accessible in the spirit of the book itself, I'm going to be asking you some very simple questions. what I consider to be fundamental questions for the benefit of the audience and people that probably have not read the book. So there have been so many other books on development that have also been quite as popular as yours. Uh, Why Nations Fail Come to Mind and so many others, The End of Poverty by Jeffrey Sachs, some of which you actually reviewed in the opening chapters of the book. And at the heart of most of them is like some kind of fundamental concept that then defines how the body of work itself or the central idea itself works, uh, whether it's institutions or culture or industrial policy or whatever. For your book, you talked a lot about the development bargain. What is the development bargain? And how does it work? So the way I look at any country in the world, and I mean any country, rich or poor countries, is that one way or another, there is a group of people which I call for convenience the elite. It's not like a pejorative title or a a title to applaud them, but simply as a descriptive title. A group of people in politics, civil service, business, definitely, maybe the military, maybe even civil society, key universities, public intellectuals. I talk about the group that I refer to as the elite. These are the people that have power or they have influence one way or another. That can be quite a broad group. Now, in every society, I think it's that group that tends to determine what politics and the economy will look like, what the direction of a country will look like in any society. And I call that underlying idea, they have essentially a form of an elite bargain, a bargain between the different people. They don't have to agree on everything, But to have some kind of an agreement that this is the principle by which, you know, my country will be run in politics and in the economy. Now, we could have lots of these elite bargains. We could have an elite bargain that, for example, is based on if I happen to have power, then everything that I'll do is to reward the people that brought me to power. I'll give them jobs in government. I'll give them maybe contracts. I'll do something, you know. Technically, we call this clientelist. You could have another one where he's saying, look, no, we're going to run this country totally where everybody gets 
an equal right or equal opportunity and in a particular way. And so you could have political systems that are around this. Now you could have all these things coming together. You could have also regimes that basically say, well, the main purpose for us is to keep us as a small group in power. You know, you could have a particular way of doing it, or indeed to make sure we use it entirely to steal anything we can get and we'll actually put it in our own pockets. You know, could have a kleptocracy. You could have lots of these different things. You know, you could have different societies. Now, what I mean by development bargain is actually fundamentally where that underlying elite bargain values the underlying ideas that we want to grow our economy and we want to do this in a quite an inclusive way. We want to have developmental outcomes as well. And we make this a key part of the elite bargain. So basically, I define a development bargain as an elite bargain, the deals that we have in running our economy and our politics, that fundamentally, one big way we will judge it is that when we make progress in the growth of the economy and also in development for the broader population. And I call that a development bargain. And I want to actually go a step further in saying, if you don't have this, you'll never see growth and development in your country. You could have leaders talk about it. They could make big development plans. But if underlying all this, there is not a fundamental commitment by all these key players that actually it's worthwhile doing, we're not going to achieve it. And maybe I'll make a quick difference here with, say, how does that difference, how you mentioned why nations fail? Now, that underlying elite bargain, of course, the nature of your rule of law, your property rights, all these things, they clearly will matter to some extent. But why nations fail puts this entirely into kind of some historical process, you know? And a lot of people that talk about getting institutions right, they say, well, you need to get the institutions right before you can develop. And they seem to come from a long historical process. In my concept of elite bargain, I would actually emphasize, even if your country is not perfect in these institutions, even if there's still some corruption left, even if there's still some issues with the political system, even with the legal system, we actually have countries that can make progress if fundamentally that commitment is there amongst the elites. So you don't have to wait until perfection starts before you can start to develop. And that actually, I want to put much more power into the hands, sorry, in the agency is the better word. I put much more agency in those who at the moment are in control of the state. You know, history may not be favorable for you. There may be history of colonialism. There may be other history factors that clearly will affect the nature of your country at a particular moment in time. But actually agency from the key actors today, they can overcome it. And in fact, in the book, I have plenty of examples of countries that start from imperfection and actually start doing quite interesting things in terms of growth and development, while other countries are very much more stagnant and staying behind. You sort of, uh, I mean, presented my next question. Uh, I mean, since say 1990 or thereabout, when the results of some of the Asia Tigers, in quotes, started coming in, uh, maybe also through the works of people like Wade, Amsden, and Co. Countries like South Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore have become like the standard for economic development. And I mean, subsequent analysis around issues of development always look at 
those countries and also their neighbors who have actually made some progress, maybe not as much as those specific countries. But what, what I want to ask you about your book is you talked about some of the works on development trying to reach for some kind of long history or some kind of historical, I don't want to say dependency or determinism, but you get my point. So my point is, if we go outside of these Asian tigers, if we go back to, say, Japan, or even the Second Industrial Revolution, America, Germany, the Netherlands, can we observe the development bargain as you have described it? Is it also consistent through history? I would say absolutely. I mean, one of the things with when we look at these countries with longer-term success, you mentioned correctly, you know, the Koreas and also Japan, or going back in time to the Industrial Revolution, Second Industrial Revolution, and so on. Actually, we take for granted that actually they really wanted to succeed. And it's actually one of these things, and especially in recent history, you know, Korea came out of deep conflict. Of course, it was also called war, so they got certain support as well. But it was really important for both Japan and Korea after the Second World War, for Japan to re-emerge and for for Korea to emerge. Um, It was a form of also getting legitimacy towards their own population. So it was a real underlying deep commitment by that elite in these countries to try to make a success of it. We take it for granted. If you go back in history, take England in the 19th century. I mean, it was a very strong thing. It was like, you know, we wanted to show that actually we are ruling the world on commerce and all the kind of things. There was a there was a deep motivation and, of course, also deep pressures. You know, remember, the society was being very fractured and we can't call growth in the 19th century in Britain very inclusive. A lot of change happening and indeed, you know, very poor people that they actually initially didn't manage to take up. But especially if we come to the early 20th century, it became this kind of thing. Surely, you know, development in the form of growth, but also where it's a little bit broader shared, became quite part of it. And it's it's one of these things that when you look at the politics, whether it's in the 1930s or 40s or 50s or now, whether it's in England or in America, actually growth and development are almost taken for granted. You know, people are voted out of office because they are not managing the economy well. There is a lot of political pressure in Europe now, and it's really political because, oh, you're not dealing with the cost of living crisis, right? Or you're undermining the real income increases. You know, the US election, we ended up interpreting Trump as an election that actually people had stayed behind in the process of growth and development. Actually, in the politics of most richer countries, it's so much taken for granted that that's a big part of the narrative. So it's an interesting one, maybe, if I, if I may, just to China, I find a really interesting one, because, you know, the historical determinism is problematic there. And of course, some people would say China should never have grown because it has the wrong institutions, but of course, it is growing fast. But if you think of a bit of a what would be historical institutions that are relevant. Um, You know, China has had centralized taxation for 2000 years, a centralized bureaucracy for 2000 years, a meritocratic bureaucracy for 2000 years. You know, it actually had a history that actually of quite strong institutions, but funnily enough, when did it start? Just at the moment of deep weakness in the 1970s. 
when the Cultural Revolution had destabilized the legitimacy of the state, ideology was totally dominating. Uh, Mao died in the early 1970s or mid-1970s, the Gang of Four came up, which was his widow. It was all turbulence. And actually lots of people thought China would disappear. It's at that moment, it picked up that kind of thing, you know, and actually fundamentally, if you read all the statements of that period, they became fundamentally committed. We need to make progress in our economy. That's our source of legitimacy. So even there, that's where you see that actually really emerging. This became something that they needed to achieve and fundamental commitment to growth and development as a form of getting legitimacy to the population. So in a very different way as some of the other countries, but it's the same principle, you know, legitimacy of a lot of countries is equated with progress in growth and development, which is essentially a feature of a development market. Obviously, all societies have some form of elite bargain. Not all elite bargains are development bargains. That's the gist of your book, basically. Now, what I'm trying to get at here is elite bargains that are not for development, that don't not benefit the rapid progress of a society. How do they emerge? You talk about the agency of the people that are running the country at a particular point in time. To take Nigeria as an example, a lot of people will blame Nigeria's problems on colonialism. And I'm also quite intolerant of such arguments, at least up to a point. But what I'm trying to get at is that how do elite bargains that are not for development, how do they emerge? Is it via also the agency of the elites of those societies? Or are there features of a particular society that kind of determines the elite bargain that emerges. For example, sticking with Nigeria, a lot of people will argue that our elites and our institutions will think and look differently if we don't have oil, right? The state will be less extractive in its thinking. The bureaucracy will be less predatory, right? A lot of people would argue that. So are there other underlying factors or features in a society that shape the kind of elite burden that emerges? Or this is just down to the agency of the people who find themselves with power and influence. They are just the wrong type of people. So, no, look, you make an, an excellent point here. Um, so let, let's take this a little bit in turn, is that... Um, you know, Leonard Wanshakong, the economic historian at Princeton from Benin, he gave a nice lecture not so long ago at Yale, it's on YouTube, and he made this very helpful statement and he said, you know, if it's between history and agency, I would put 50% history, 50% agency, okay? And I would actually add to it is that depending on where you are, history is a little bit more, a little bit less. Okay, and so clearly, and he was talking about Africa in general, you know, colonialism will matter, you know, and it has shaped your institutions and, you know, the way countries have emerged and the way they decolonized, all these things will have mattered and they make it harder and easier and so on. But you alluded to it as well. At some level, it's already a long time ago now. Of course, it's still there, but it's a long time ago. So over time, agency should become much more important. The point, though, that you raise about oil makes a lot of sense. Okay, so 
the problem with the development bargain is that actually for a political elite and for a business elite, um, they are say for a military elite, the status quo is of course very convenient. You know, status quo is something that is very convenient because it involves very few risks. Okay, so the problem with growth typically is that actually new elites may emerge, new type of business elites may emerge, they may question the economic elite that exists. As a result, it may change the politics. And in fact, if you go back to history, as we were saying, of course, that's the history of Britain, where all the time, you know, there has been a shift of who is the elite. There is always a new elite, but it's shifting. So growth is actually a tricky thing because it actually, in that sense, changes relative positions in societies. Now, that's obviously the case in every society, but it will even more so if the status quo is actually quite a relative affluence, if the status quo is actually a quite a comfortable position to be in. Now, if you have natural resources, you don't need growth to be able to steal. You can just basically control the resources that come out of the ground. And so your supply chain for stealing money can be very short. You don't have to do a very complicated game. If you need to get it from growth in the economy, it's much more complicated and it's much more risky. Okay, And so it's not for nothing that actually clearly more countries that didn't have natural resources in recent times, over short periods of times, managed to actually get development bargains and basically leads gambling on it, because actually the status quo was not as lucrative as the status quo can be if you have a lot of oil or other minerals. And so you're right, and it makes it just really hard. And it actually means, in fact, even well-meaning parts of the business elite in Nigeria will find it very hard to shift the model entirely. Because, you know, you are a business elite because you benefit from the system one way or another. I'm not saying that you steal, but it's just the economy is based in Nigeria and a lot of non-tradables is helped with the fact that you have so much to export from oil. And so you end up importing a lot, but you can also keep your borders closed for anything you feel like keeping the borders closed for. And that helps for a lot of domestic industries because protectionism, you know, you, you do all that thing. So the system self-sustains it. And with oil, there is not that much incentives to change it. So yes, it is actually harder if you have natural resources to actually re-engineer the system to actually go for growth and development. So yes, it is the case, but it hasn't stopped certain countries from not going that route. You know, Malaysia has oil. Yes, it's not a perfect development bargain, but it has done remarkably well. Indonesia in its early stages also had oil in the 1970s as an important part. It managed this kind of relationship. And then maybe come the agency in it, you know, do we get enough actors that actually have the collective ability to shift these incentives enough to start promoting more outward orientation, try to export some new things from your country, all that kind of stuff. And that is indeed what happened in Indonesia. There in the early 1970s, they had oil, but they also learned to export shoes and garments early on. They took advantage of good global situations. Yeah, and Nigeria didn't, you know, and then agency comes into it. You know, the managers of both the politics and the relationship between politics and business, including from the military, they went on a particular route and they had choices and they didn't take them. I'm, I'm pretty sure if you go back and, you know, there will have been moments of choice. And we went for another, as people call it, political settlement, another equilibrium that actually didn't involve 
development and growth as the key part. So yes, it makes it harder, but the agency still, still matters. Mm. From that point, my next question then would be, what shifts an elite bargain more? That's kind of like the question, right? What, what shifts an elite bargain? These questions do sound simple, and I'm sorry, but I know they are incredibly difficult to answer. Otherwise, you wouldn't have written an entire book about it, right? So what shifts an elite bargain more towards development? I mean, you talked about China. We've seen it also in so many other countries where the country was going in a particular direction that's not really pro-growth development and then there's this moment where things sort of shifts so it may be through the actions of particular actors or events that uh, inform them so what in your experience as a development practitioner and looking at all these places what are the factors that have the most influences in shifting the elite burden is it just luck? I mean, when I think about China, what if De Jinping and his colleagues had actually lost that particular power struggle after the death of Mao? So did they get lucky? Is it luck? What, what's going on? You know, I wouldn't use the title of gambling that there has to be a little bit of luck involved as well. You know, the circumstances have to play in your direction. But it's not just luck. Okay, so it's an interesting thing when you look at a couple of the countries what were the moments that actually people within the elite managed to shift it in another direction? So China is interesting because it was going through conflict, not deep conflict or violent conflict, but there was a lot of instability in China at the time, at the end of the Cultural Revolution in that period. Other countries like Bangladesh came out of conflict. And so conflict definitely, or coming out of conflict, creates a moment. Okay? But of course, there's lots of countries that come out of conflict and make a mess of it. It's a window of opportunity, and it probably is linked with something related to it, which is legitimacy. When you come out of conflict, most of the time, leaders need to reestablish legitimacy. This is clearly something that happened in Rwanda, coming out of the genocide. Kagame clearly had to establish legitimacy. You know, He represented a very small group of people within the country. And he needed to get legitimacy overall, and he chose growth and development of doing that. I think Ethiopia is similar, that actually Malisanawi, coming from Tigray, he needed, you know, post-2000, coming out of the Eritrean war at the time, and all kinds of other crises that he was facing in, in his own party even, he needed to get legitimacy, and he thought he could get legitimacy for his regime through growth and development. So legitimacy-seeking behavior can be quite important. Now, it has a, another side to it. If there's a crisis of legitimacy, that's a moment when a leader can actually take advantage of it. A crisis of legitimacy is actually saying, well, look, we better go to something that begins to deliver to people. And why I'm actually suggesting it is that actually there are in certain countries, a bit of pressure from below also seems to be then quite useful. But there is a role there, and I find it very hard to define exactly because I'm always scared of autocrats and, and so on, but the point of leadership is there. So I don't mean it as the strong leader, but more to do with the kind of group of people that manages to take other people along and convince them that is the kind of thing that they need to do. So if you go to Indonesia, 
I don't think it was Suharto personally who was the great thinker there that did it. But he clearly surrounded himself with a group of people that included technocrats and also other people from politics that actually managed to push this in a particular direction in doing it. So how do we get it? Well, it is actually people taking advantage of windows of opportunity to actually nudge towards it, okay? But it's hard, you know, we're talking Nigeria. Other people have asked me questions about Brazil, about India, you know, large countries like yours with very complicated elite bargains that have national and state level things and so on. It's really complicated and it's not simply, you know, Rwanda in that sense is well-defined. You know, you had one well-defined problem and, you know, we could go for a particular model. Um, it can be quite complicated. I have some ideas on that on Nigeria, but maybe we can come to that a bit later. So I'm curious. Yeah, I know you didn't cover this in your book. So let me let you speculate a bit on the psychology of elite bargain or development bargain specifically now. Given that, I mean, I also tried to look at some of the societies that you described and even some others that you probably didn't mention. I don't think there's been a society yet where this is a gamble, true, but where the elites have sort of lost out by gambling on development. So why don't we see a lot more gambles than we are seeing currently? Actually, unfortunately, we see gambles that go wrong. I mean, for me, and I've worked a lot on Ethiopia, Ethiopia is a gamble that went wrong oh. at the moment. And Ethiopia, you know, just think a little bit of what happened and maybe typify a little bit in a very simplistic way the nature of the gamble. You know, you had a leader under Melisenawi, under the TPLF, the Tigrayan rebel group, where in the end the dominant force in the military force that actually took power in 1991 and they stayed dominant even though they only represent you know five six percent of the population they remained dominant in that political deal though other groups joined but militarily it was the tplf that was the most powerful so it also meant that the political deal was always fragile because in various periods of time, you know, my very first job was teaching in Addis Ababa University. So I was teaching there in 1992, 93. You know, we had violence on the streets of students. They were being actually repressed by the state. They were demonstrating against the government. You know, over time, we had various instances where this kind of legitimacy, the political legitimacy of that regime was also being questioned. Now, one of the gambles that Melisenawi took was to actually say, look, there's a very fragile political deal, but I'm actually going to get legitimacy through growth and development. So he used development as a way of getting legitimacy for something that politically, and you know, just as Nigeria is complicated, Ethiopia is complicated with different nationalities, different balances between the regions, that he actually wasn't quite giving the space for these different nationalities to have a role, but he was gambling on doing it through growth and development. How did this go wrong? You know, I kept on spending a lot of time, but in the 2010s, after Melissa died, very young from illness, the government still tried to pursue this, but actually increasingly they couldn't keep the politics together anymore. The aromas of different nationality, they were always on the streets, there was lots of violence and so on. And then in the end, you know, the Tigrayans lost power in the central government. And then of course we know how it then escalated further after Abiy. But in some sense, the underlying political deal was fragile. And the hope was 
that through economic progress, we could strengthen that political deal through legitimacy. That gamble is fine. Now it's a very fractured state, and unfortunately all the news we get from the country is that it's increasingly fractured, and I don't know how we'll put it together again. So that's a gamble that failed. Now, we know more about it than it was very visible because it lasted quite a long time. Many of these gambles may actually misfire if they don't pick the right political moments. You know, if you don't do it at the right moment, and if you're a little bit lucky with global circumstances, you fairly quickly could get into a bit of trouble politically and whatever. For example, with the high inflation we have in virtually every country in the world now, this is clearly not the moment to gamble. It's extremely risky, fragile, and your opponents will use it against it. So it's another thing like, you know, we don't see them gambling. You know, there are relatively few windows of opportunities at which you can gamble. And there are some that, that will go wrong. And even some that I described as successes, you know, we don't know whether they will last, whether they will become the new careers. I'm cautious about that. So, so we need to just, yeah, see it a little bit. Although I haven't yeah. quite seen Nigeria taking that gamble. So that's another matter. <laughs> no, no. I mean, that's where I was going next. Let me talk to you a bit about the role of outsiders here. We're going to get to the eight discussion later. So, um, I mean, currently in Nigeria, obviously the economy has been through a lot in the last seven years. A lot of people will put that firmly into the hands of the current administration. Rightly so. There were some very terrible policy choices that were made. But one point that I've quite often made to friends is that, to borrow your terminology, I don't think Nigeria was under the influence of a development bargain that suddenly went astray seven years ago. We've always been heading in this direction. Some periods were just pretty good. And one of those periods was in the mid to late 2000s when the economy seemed to be doing quite well, high oil prices, and also the government actually really took a stab at macroeconomic reforms. But if also you look carefully at the micro history of that period, you will see the influence of, should I say, outside legitimacy, you know, trying to get the debt forgiveness deal over the line. And, you know, so many other moves that the government was making to increase its credibility internationally was highly influential in some of those decisions and the people that were brought into the government and some of the reforms. Too. And I mean, my proof for that when I talk to people is to look at the other things that we should have done, which we didn't do. We had the opportunity to actually reform either to privatization or a more sustainable model of our energy policy, the energy industry generally, electricity. People like to talk about telecommunications and the GSM revolution, but we didn't do anything about electricity. We didn't do anything about transportation. Infrastructure was still highly deficient and investment was not serious. You know, so it was not for me personally, it was not a development bargain. Now, my question then would be, could it have been different if some of the outside influences that are sometimes exerted on countries can be a bit more focused on long-term development as opposed to 
short-term macroeconomic reforms and stability. You know, institutions like the IMF, the World Bank, I know they have their defined mandates, but is it time for a change? I think they actually have a lot more influence than they are using currently. You know, you, you make extremely valid points. And I think I will broadly agree with you with what you just implied. And I'll, I'll take a stance on it now. So the first thing, of course, and you correctly saw that, something very misleading in Nigeria's growth figures is that periods of high growth are not at all linked to much action by economic policymakers, but it's still largely linked to oil prices. And we have this unfortunate cyclical behavior in policymaking where the behavior when prices are really good is just always missing taking advantage of the opportunity. While when things are bad, talking about all kinds of things one ought to be doing, but then saying we can't do it because the prices are low. Mm-hmm. And so there is this kind of strange asymmetric thing about policymaking that we always have the best ideas when we can't do them. And then we don't have the ideas we should have when the going is good. And this is, in a, in a way, what you're alluding to. Of course, the role of outsiders that gets that very interesting is that what these outsiders were focusing on, actually, I think it was in the interest of the kind of call them semi-outsider inside government. (laughs) So these technocrats that were brought in, and I can understand it entirely. You know, there was some really sensible finance minister at various moments and so on. You know, they were focused on actually things that were relatively easy in that period. So they were actually relatively easy because the going was quite good. And so actually you created that strange impression and it's a little bit like together with the outsiders with World Bank IMF, that actually we're dealing with something really dramatic, but actually we were not at all setting a precedent because it was actually relatively, relatively politically low cost to do these things at that moment, okay? So it was progress of sorts, you know, getting the debt relief and so on, but arguably, you know, it's not a bad thing, but this actually was quite a low hanging fruit. And many of these organizations like these ideas of low hanging fruits, because actually politically it played well, it increased the stature internationally of Nigeria, but actually it didn't really cost the elite much. It wasn't really hard for the elite to do these things. The difficult things, they would really have started to change Nigeria. And so there is something there and I'm struck by the last sentence you said is that some of these outsiders may be focusing on the wrong things. I think it has to be the insiders wanted to focus on these things, on these more difficult things. And then I do agree with you, the outsiders should be smarter and better able to respond to this. There's a problem with the outsiders here as well. Take something that clearly you still struggle with and struggle forever with, uh, electricity reform the electricity sector. It's so complicated and it's set up so complicated in all kinds of ways and whatever. Yeah. So much inefficiency, so much wasted and it doesn't function and everybody, you know, complains about it. Now, but it becomes politically very sensitive because there's definitely vested interests linked to it now and it becomes very hard to unravel it. Now, the problem is if you ask typically a World Bank or an IMF for advice, they will make it very simple and say, oh, just, you know, it definitely privatize. privatize the whole thing and, and yeah. do the whole thing. Now, you know that in a politically sensitive environment, 
you just can't privatize everything. So you privatize a little bit, <laughs> but anything that's really with vested interest, you won't touch. But these are the inefficient bits. So the easy prey, you privatize, and then someone else is making even more money of it because it's actually the efficient part of the whole system that gets privatized. Mm -hmm. And then the inefficient part is still there and costs even more money. And so what I think these outsiders could do better is to have a better understanding of Nigeria's political economy, which is complicated at the best of time, but really understand where can we start actually touching on something that we are beginning to touch on something vested interest, that we begin to unravel a little bit some of the kind of underlying problem of, you know, politically connected business, you know, all the way to party financing or whatever, that you need to start unraveling somehow where actually the underlying causes of inefficiency lie, because the underlying causes of inefficiency are not just technical. They're actually not just economic. The underlying causes have these kind of things. So I think why the outsiders did what they did at that time, it actually suited the government at the time, the technocratic ministers, that's the best they could do because that was the only mandate they had. Um, together with the outsiders, say, well, that's at least something we could do, but actually fundamentally you didn't really change that much. You know, we still have then, whenever then it goes a bit bad, I'll get six or whatever exchange rates and I'll get all kinds of other macroeconomic poor management. And of course, nothing can happen when there's a crisis. There's no way we can do these more micro uh, sector specific reforms than doing it. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. But let's not underestimate how hard it is. But starting to do the things that you refer to is where we need to get to doing some of these difficult things. The way I also read your book is that the two classic problems of political economy are still present, which is the incentive and the knowledge problem. Uh, so I want to talk about the rule of knowledge and ideas here. Let's even suppose that a particular group of elites at a particular time are properly incentivized to pursue a development bargain, right? Sometimes the kind of ideas you still find floating around in the corridors of power can be quite counterproductive. A very revealing part of your book for me was when you were talking about the role of China. Um, also, I have no problem with China. The anecdote about Justin Lin stood out to me <laughs> quite well because I could relate to it personally because I've also been opportune to be at conferences where Justin Lin spoke, and I was slightly uneasy at how much simplification happens. I mean, just to digress a little bit, there was a particular presidential candidate in the just concluded primaries of the ruling party, I'm not going to mention his name, who is quite under the heavy influence of the China model, right? always consults with China, always meeting with Chinese economists and technocrats. And my reaction when he lost the primaries was tangled, right? Because what I see mostly in development thinking locally, I, I don't mean in academic circles, a lot of debate is still going on in the academic circle locally, is that the success of China and Asia more broadly has bring the states primarily into the front and center. If you look at this current government, they will tell you seven years ago that they meant well 
You know, I mean, judging by the Abakiari anecdotes where government should own the means of production, he may not believe that, like you said, truthfully, but you can see the influence of what has been called state-led development in a state where there is no capable bureaucracy. The government itself is not even optimized to know the problem to solve or even how to solve that particular problem, right? So broadly, my question is, if an elite chooses to pursue a development bargain, how does it then ensure that the right ideas which lead to the right kind of policies. And maybe there might not even be right policies. One of the things you mentioned is changing your mind quickly. It's an experimental process. But, you know, this process needs people who are open to ideas, who change their minds, who can also bring other people in with different ideas. You know, so this idea generation process in a development bargain, how can it be stable, even if you have an elite consensus that chooses to pursue development? Look, this is an excellent question. And last week, or 10 days ago, when I was in Bangladesh, I was very struck that, you know, it's a country, I think, that has a development bargain. There was a lot of openness. And, you know, I was in Ministry of Finance and people had a variety of ideas, but they were all openly debated. There was not a kind of fixed mindset. And it is something that I've always found a bit unfortunate dealing with both politicians and and senior technocrats in Nigeria. Nigeria is quickly seen as the center of the world. There's nothing to learn from the rest of the world. We'll just pick an idea and then we'll run with it. And there's nothing that needs to be checked. And, um, you know, I love the self-confidence, but for thinking and for pursuit of ideas, you know, looking around and questioning what you hear, whether you hear it from Justin Lin, who, by the way, I, you know, I don't think he's maligned and he means well, he just has a particular way of communicating. But it is, of course, a simplified story that you then simply get and then you pick it up. And of course, if you ask the UK government, the official line from London, they will also tell you there's only one model when they're purely official, but privately they will be a bit more open-minded and maybe Chinese officials don't feel they have that freedom to privately encourage you to think a bit broader. And so you have a, maybe a stricter line. So how do we do that? I think we can learn something here from India in the 1970s and 1980s. So when India, after independence, it had a very strict set of ideas. In that sense, India was, as call it, a child of its time as a state, you know, state control, state-led development. There were strong views around it, and India ended up doing a lot of regulation. They used to refer to India as the licensed Raj, you know, like a whole system based around licensing, and everything was regulated by the state. So the state had far too much say in terms of the activity, despite the fact that the underlying economy was meant to be very entrepreneurship and commerce led but you had a lot of licenses and rules and so on and of course its growth stayed very low in in the 1970s and 80s it was actually very stagnant it changed in the 1990s partly came with a crisis in fact a balance of payments crisis it needs to reform and Manuel Singh who was the finance minister then later on he became maybe a less successful prime minister but as a finance minister in the early 90s He did quite amazing things. And then during the 90s, gradually every party started adopting a much more growth-oriented, more output-oriented type of mindset. 
Now, why do I say this? Because actually, during the 1970s and 80s, you had think tanks all the time pushing for these broader ideas. It took them 20 years. But there were really well-known think tanks that kept on trying to convince people in the planning commission, economists in the universities and so on, and to critically think, look, there must be other ways. So actually, funnily enough, in India, it has a lot to do with the thinking and the public debate that initially the politicians didn't take up, but actually found the right people to influence. You know, you actually have still in the civil service some decent technocrats there. They don't get a chance, but there are decent people. I, I know some of them and so on. But there needs to be a feeding of these ideas. And actually, this is where I would almost say there's a bit of a failing here in the way the public discourse is done. And maybe voices like you, but also more systematically from universities, from think tanks and so on, to actually feed and keep on feeding these ideas. There is a suggestion that Pritchard, you know, is a former Harvard economist, is now in the UK, wrote this very interesting paper and he said, some of these think tanks were actually getting a little bit of aid money here and there. And he said, that's probably the best spent aid money in India ever, because the rate of return, and he calculates this number, is like a million percent or something, <laughs> because he basically says the power of ideas is there. And I do think there is something there that I always surprised by, that there's some very smart Nigerians outside the country they don't really get much of a hearing inside the country. Then there are some that actually inside the country, the quality of debate is maybe not stimulated to be thinking beyond. It has to do probably to do with how complicated your country is. And of course, the federal status plays a role. I just wonder whether maybe this is something that needs to start in particular states. You know, there are some governors that are a little bit more progressive than others. Maybe it is actually increasing and focusing attention on a, on a few states to get the debate up to a higher level and to actually see what they can do. And maybe it's where the entry point is. But you need ideas. I agree with you. And I do worry at times about the kind of critical quality. There's, there's some great thinkers in Nigeria, and don't get me wrong, but the critical quality of ideas around alternative ways of doing the economy and so on, and that they get so easily captured by simple narratives, simple national narratives that are really just too simple to actually pursue. I mean, yeah. That's, that's quite deep. <laughs> that's quite deep. I mean, just captures my life's mission right there. It's interesting you talked about uh, land preacher and the question of aid, which is like my next line of question to you. There was this brief exchange on Twitter that I caught about the review of your book and The Guardian. And the question of aid came up. I saw responses from Martin Ravelon, from Rachel Glenner, my star. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing her name right. So it sort of then brings me to the whole question of development assistance, aid, and the way intervention has now been captured by what works. One fantastic example I got from your book is on Bangladesh and how both systems work. You know, there's a broad development bargain. It's not perfect. Nothing is. The society is. And there's the pursuit of economic growth. And also, it's a country where aid money and all forms of development assistance is quite active and is quite huge. And it's actually quite effective. Now, my question is that basic insight from your book, which is for 
aid spending to be a little bit more biased, not your word, a little bit more biased to countries that have development bargains broadly. Why is that insight so difficult for, I should say, the international NGO industry to grasp? Why is it elusive? Because the status quo, which I would say, uh, I don't mean to offend anybody, but which I would say is also aided by development economists and academics who have sort of put methodology and evidence above prosperity, in my view. Because what you see is that regardless of how dysfunctional the country is broadly, the aid industry just carves out a nice niche where they do all sort of interventions, cash transfers, chickens. And of course, you can always do randomized control trials and you see you have evidence for what works. But meanwhile, you don't see the broad influence of some of these so-called assistance in the country as a whole. And these are institutions who proclaim that they are committed to fighting extreme poverty and we know what has vastly reduced poverty through history has always been economic growth and prosperity. So why is this elusive? Have those agencies and international development thinking itself being captured? Look, I think I should make you do my interviews in the future. You know, so I'm going to hire you to give to do these interviews because look, I look, I've been inside the aid industry. And look, and, this, and in fact, the two people that you mentioned, you know, they, I mean, I would call them my friends, although one of them clearly is very cross at me at the moment. But, you know, these are people I've worked with and so on. And I am worried that there is such an obsession within the aid industry to prove their effectiveness. And I know I've been under pressure, you know, I've worked in it and sitting in London and getting your newspapers to say you're wasting all this money. It's really affecting a lot of people. And it was really hard work for these 10 years that I sat inside it. But it's about just the humility that you just described, you know. And it, I want to make this distinction between, um, I want to make two distinctions. So the first one is, you made it well. If in Bangladesh, something is going on, and you know, with all the imperfections, the government is trying to do something, and largely by staying to some extent out of the way, and there's some good stuff happening. So there's growth picking up and so on. So you can do all kinds of things. And I think aid in Bangladesh has been great at trying to make sure that the growth that was taking place in that country was a bit more inclusive than it probably would have been. And I think it's great. And I think the aid industry should be proud of it. There is a great book that I quote as well, so by Naomi Hossein, and she calls it the aid lab. And it isn't a bit like in praise of aid. You know, if you do it carefully with some community and complement what's going on in a country that is deeply poor, you know, you can actually do really good things. Because in the book, I also mentioned Ghana, that actually aid has been pretty effective because something had begun to change in the 90s and so on. And we can, you know, we can question that to some extent. And of course, there's none of these perfections. But if you then come to a country where, you know, we probably, the two of us agree, there is some form of stagnation in that kind of, there's no development bargain, there's a need bargain that doesn't really push everything forward. Just be humble to say, look, I have a little niche and there will be some chicken farmers that are happier. 
we'll do some good things in health. In health, actually, it's quite straightforward to do good things. But dare to call these good things. Don't classify this as if you are leading the fight against extreme poverty, leading the fight against the change in these countries. Because actually, if the local elite is not leading that change, and those people who have the power and influence of leading that change, you know, the best you can do is doing good things. So I'm happy for us to be able to say we do good things. And it let me, in the context of an interview, to say, like in India, us doing a lot of good things means that it was actually in itself quite irrelevant because the real change came, as I described, in the 90s, actually there was a real shift in gear and suddenly their own development spending became gradually more effective. And of course, you can help them then to make it more effective. But, you know, I was a bit sad that Martin Revalian then took issue with it and wanted to emphasize you know, and I don't want us to ever say, look, we did it. I mean, it's such a lack of humility outside us. At some point, we may have been supportive of doing it, but it's always the countries that did it and the people there that did it. And other times, just be humble and say, well, we may be doing something reasonably good. We may improve health outcomes, education outcomes, but not necessarily in the whole country. We may do it in the schools that we work in or whatever. And it's that's good, you know. That's just as the Nigerians that do good things by their own organizations and so on. They do good things. And there's probably teachers in the country within the state schools that do some of these good things and the best practice stuff. And so, yeah, they improve things. But overall, have the humility to say you're not changing Nigeria because, unfortunately, Nigeria is not being changed at the moment. So my question then would be, is it reflective of the current intellectual climate in development economics where randomized control trials, the pursuit, I know Land Pritchard has really come down quite heavily on this particular movement, though sometimes it seems to be the only one standing, uh, maybe not quite literally true. And I'll give you two examples from Nigeria, right? In 2012, when the anti-subsidy removal protests broke out, when the government on the first day of January removed full subsidy and prices suddenly went up. And the labor movement, the student movement, opposition politicians mobilized the population against that particular move. Uh, some form of resolution that the uh, current president at that time reached was to do what they call a partial removal of subsidy. You know, right? Prices will go up a little bit. And the government then did a scheme, an entrepreneurship scheme, where you submit a business plan. And if you're paid to get $50,000 to do a business with. And I read a particular study by David Evans of the World Bank of how fantastically successful this particular scheme was. And of course, no doubt, it was successful. I mean, if you get $50,000 to do business in Nigeria, that's a lot of money. I don't need econometric analysis to know that, but maybe some people do. But the truth is, if you look today, I can bet you that a lot of those businesses are probably dead now due to how the economy has sort of evolved after that. Secondly, at the time we were having these debates and protests in 2012, the subsidy figure then was around $8 billion annually. Today it is $15 billion. 
So if you say you have evidence that something works, what exactly is your time horizon for measuring what works? And if you say something works, works in whose benefit, really? The most recent example was in 2018, 2019, where the government was given a small amount of money to small retailers. They call it trader money. You know, I'm sure there were World Bank officials and economists, and I have a lot of respect for them who are measuring the effectiveness of this thing. But you could see clearly that what was politically going on was the government doing vote buying. <laughs> Right? So if you say something work, works for whom? Right? That was my response to Rachel on Twitter, but I mean, of course, she didn't reply me. My question then to you, sorry, I'm talking too much. Is this reflective of the current intellectual climate in development economics? Um, so yes and no. Okay, so the... Well, I'm going to have to be very careful. Of course, Rachel is a <laughs> of economists and different. I know her very well. And actually, I have not that many gripes with her. She, she comes out of, indeed, the whole school of, of RCTs. By the way, I also actually do RCTs. I like it as a tool to actually study things. And I'll explain in a moment a bit more. So I do these randomized controlled trials as well. But I, I'm very, very sympathetic and actually totally agree with your frustration around this idea to creating that impression about what works. You know, I have it in the book, I even mentioned it, there was a particular minister that at some point announced, we're only going to spend our money on what works, you know? And it's yeah. a kind of great slogan, as if you have all the answers, you know what to do it. And of course, there's a technical meaning to it. Technical meaning would mean, if I do something and if you hadn't done it, what would have been the outcome? So, and the paper that you refer on the entrepreneurship, this internship for the $50,000, I know actually the research very well. The original was from David McKenzie and then other people commenting on it. Yes, relative to a kind of factual, yes, it was actually much bigger than an alternative scheme, you know, than, than something. So you could say, well, you know, as a research question, as a researcher, I find it interesting. From a policy point of view, I'm so much more cautious and I'm totally with you. You know, first of all, in the bigger scheme of things, how tiny may it be. Now, there's some people would say, well, we don't know anything really what to do in this whole messy environment. So at least have something that does a bit better than other things is maybe a useful thing to know. I think it comes back to that humility. As a research tool, it's great at getting exact answers. As a policy tool, I think we need to have much more humility because this idea that it suddenly transforms everything, that it actually makes a huge difference, not really. It probably means that we can identify a little bit, and I think even Len Pritchard wouldn't disagree with, sometimes a few things are a little bit better than other things. And if we want to do good, maybe it's helpful in medicine whether we know whether we should spend a bit more money on X or on Y that actually does a little bit better in the functioning of a health facility or not. If we spend a bit more money on that practice or on that practice, same in teaching in the school, if we do a little bit more of that in a very constrained environment than something else, that's useful. It doesn't change dramatically. And I, I categorize it with doing good, you know, with humility. If we do good, it's helpful to know which things are a bit better than other things when we're trying to do good. And it's an interesting thing, even in Rachel's threat, she actually used it. We can still do quite a lot of good with aid. Actually, funnily enough, I don't disagree that deeply with her and say, yeah, we may be able to do it good, but don't present it as if we, in the bigger scheme of things, which is where you're getting at, 
make any difference. And this is where I'm also sympathetic with Lant is saying, look, sometimes we seem to be focusing on the small trivial things. And yeah, it's useful to know. But meanwhile, the big picture is what you were describing. There's so much going on and actually nothing changes there. And so I categorize it in a bit on the same thing, because I'll now give you account, which is then go to Bangladesh again. Look, I think it was extremely useful in Bangladesh at some point to really have fire an RCT, a randomized control trial, some really careful evidence to show that the particular program that BRAC, the biggest NGO in the world, the local NGO, was actually what it was actually doing to the ultra poor, a particular package. In fact, two weeks ago, I was visiting the program again. And I find it really interesting because it's really helpful for BRAC to know that that program, when I do it in a careful evaluation relative to other things, that actually this program is really effective. And that actually we know for BRAC that they can have so much choices to spend their money on poverty alleviation, things that we can dream up to actually know this is actually a really good thing. And why, of course, does it work? Well, it works relative to doing nothing, but of course it helps. In Bangladesh, growth is taking place and it actually can get people to become taking part of it. In fact, I was visiting people that whether we use a Nigerian or a Bangladeshi definition of extreme poverty, they would have been in that state 10 years ago. And so this is, they had been six, seven years in that program. And it was really interesting that I was sitting in into some interviews they were doing and I looked over my shoulder and they now had a TV and a fridge. And I say, okay, mm. An extreme poor person in Bangladesh would not have had this. So there's clearly mm. something happening. Now, that's not simply because of the program. It's also because the whole country is improving. But I'm pretty sure, and what the data showed, is that those who actually had that program would have found it a bit easier to take part of that progress. And I'm pretty sure that that TV and the fridge probably was helped to some extent by that program. In fact, we have very good evidence in the kind of evidence that Rachel Glenister talks to. So... So again, I think it's all about a bit of humility, understanding better what we mean by it. And to be honest, I think there are lots of people who work in that field that are careful with it and that actually will do it, use it well. It gets just really worrying that people, you know, often more junior people than Rachel, they've never really been in the field properly. And then they make massive statements. So they work in big organizations and they use that evidence overuse it and overstate it. I, mm-hmm. I actually, I think Rachel is actually careful, even her threat was very careful, although your question is a very good one, but it's very careful, but it still allows other people to overinterpret this whole thing. And then I get really worried. You know, I'm, I'm actually going to put out a threat on Twitter in coming days where I'm going to talk about tribalism in development economics, mm-hmm. where I'm going to deal with your question as well, because I think the way the profession is evolved is that you need to be in one tribe or another. Otherwise, you're mm. not allowed to function. Mm. I think, you know, you need to be eclectic. You know, no, no one has this single answer. And there's too much tribalism going on, much more than I've ever known before. You know, you need to be, oh, a fan of that. Or you need to be a historical approach or the political economy approach. And, oh, we should learn from all these bits. That's the idea of knowledge, that you learn from as much as possible from the progress in different parts of a discipline. I'm glad to have, uh, do not for a good reason, but I'm glad to have caught you on a free day because having a lot more time to have this conversation has made it quite 
reach for me personally, and I'm sure for the audience as well. So I just have a couple more questions before I let you get back to your day. The first of those would be, uh, when I first became aware of your book on Twitter, it was via a Chris Blackman thread. And you mentioned something that I've also struggled with, both personally in my thoughts and in my conversation with people. And something you have alluded to earlier is pressure from the bottom. So the question that I'm sure an average Nigerian right now is grappling with is what can they do? What can they do to affect the system? The sad reality in a certain context is that a few people run the country and they sort of decide the direction with which the country go. Bureaucrats in Abuja can decide what happens to your business in Lagos or in Onija or in Katina or wherever. So the question then becomes, what can you do as someone who is not a member of that select few to affect the system? And I want to put that question to you, that the generic common man, what can they do? I think there's several things that we can still do, of which the first one is that we keep on debating and we keep on talking. I mean, the example I gave from India, you know, there is a power of ideas and there is a power of both convincing young people who, you know, in Nigeria are increasingly dominating the electorate. So I think people can still do quite a lot. So the first thing I would say is that conversations we're having, um, they matter. When I refer to earlier also what was happening in India, during the 1980s, the debating, the discussing, the kind of thinking about alternative options. You know, we're not talking about fundamentally, you know, political upheaval or, you know, this is not about coups, this is not about revolution. This is actually about persuading key people in powerful positions to open themselves for ideas that are more developmental, that are more growth-oriented. And I would say... It has to be about, for example, getting to a situation where we're buying more from Nigeria than just oil, mm. that we are willing to start asking ourselves, is the nature of the link between politics and the economy the right one, how politics is financed and so on. But you begin bit by bit because you'll need to have key people in whose interest it also is seen to be that there is some of this change. So I think in Nigeria, it's definitely going to be about a changing political class or an evolving political class. You know, there's lots of people would say, look, the current two candidates, the last time of that generation will probably fight it out. You know, there's a newer generation coming. Hopefully it will be a bit younger than just a few years and so on. And so you start getting bits of this renewal, but it's making sure there is enough of ideas and enough openness and not making it too simple. You know, none of this is going to be easy. None of this is going to be quick because it's going to be choices. And basically, I think what we should be doing is that because we are at the moment going through very high oil prices. So central bank is laughing all the way and, and it's easy for the macroeconomy but every time, whether it's this wave of high prices or the next one of high oil prices, of course, this one is combined with other issues as well in global prices, 
in other things, but whenever the macroeconomy has a bit of that space to actually prepare ourselves to do a little bit more sensible things with it. Things that are not driven by ideology, but by pragmatism. Things that are willing to start taking on some of the difficult things or not. So these ideas need to be planted now, even if we only start doing them, maybe not during the next presidency, but the one afterwards. Maybe, and that's also where I think really could work in Nigeria, is having some governors that actually within the space they have, and they have some space, and they have a bit more space than they sometimes take, but actually doing sensible things. And, you know, trying to, for example, do another type of politics, a politics of legitimacy, where they want to be re-elected based on a platform of delivery, rather than re-elected on a platform of vote banks or party finance, and so on. So you begin to work on that. So it's basically a mixture of realism, but making sure the power of ideas, but bits of accountability, because we talked earlier about learning and ideas, but learning actually is a form of accountability, being willing to say, I'm actually wrong and I need to change my mind. And so it's a form of building up a little bit better the way these debates, maybe the way civil society works and so on. I really think that actually organizing also among civil servants, I thought one of the very interesting things that was in Bangladesh is that actually civil servants in their own private time connected themselves with young people in other sectors and so on. And they debated, you know, they, they're not breaking any rules or regulations, but they were trying to get themselves organized. And there was a, I was the guest of a youth policy forum that in a couple of years now has 30,000 members on Facebook. And they were actively debating what a new economy could look like, what actually an upgrading of their economy could look like, what sectors it would look like and so on. And actually having quite in-depth discussions on industrial policy and so on, in ways that I was very surprised by. So it's basically finding ways of connecting and talking. And then, you know, young people in Nigeria are the power in the end, you know, they increasingly are the voters as well, and to try to see whether one can get a little bit forward. So I think it's to do with where you sit, the quality of debate, but it's also probably about the quality of organization and not just debate for the sake of debating, which I think happens a lot in Nigeria, but mm -hmm. actually organizing and actually thinking, you know, where do we find areas of consensus and organizing yourselves? And this is not in a revolutionary sense, but just in an influencing sense. I was struck in Bangladesh that with one week notice, they organized a discussion about my book with this youth policy forum. But they managed to get the chief economic advisor of the president to be there and six MPs, all with a week's notice. You know, I thought that's actually quite powerful. And the reason they turned up was not because of me, but because this group of 30,000 people had organized it. And they have so much Facebook coverage and so on. And they do high quality debates. So it's things like that that actually people can do. And I think... There is more future to that. And I don't see it enough coming from Nigeria. Maybe I'm missing it. Maybe it is there. But I think, you know, that's influential. Final question before I let you go. What's your one big idea for? I know the big idea from your book is the development bargain. Trust me, you may not know it yet, but that's quite a powerful idea that will be quite influential in the years to come. But what are your other big ideas on how countries, particularly from a policy perspective, 
if you want to pursue a development volume, what are the first set of things as a rough sketch that you should get right in terms of policy? Yeah. So the one big lesson is, and that would be for Nigeria and also for some of the other countries, is that it sounds maybe like an old lesson, but it gets a different meaning in this context. And this is about, you need, of course, you need to find for every economy needs to find its growth engines. The whole power of encouraging a growth engine that involves the world as the market rather than your own economy as the market is, in my view, still more powerful than we may have understood for a long time. But for a long time, people said, oh, you need to export because you probably need to have foreign exchange and you need to do something in the economy. What I see very powerful in Bangladesh, in an economy, in a society where politics is very messy, which is not as strongly ruled as Korea was during its time of progress or Taiwan was, but actually had in that sense weak, relatively you know, tricky politics, call it like there's a not a very functional state, not a very strong state, and a lot of corruption around as well. By having to sell to the world and making that a real big part of what you do, proved an incredibly powerful disciplining device for the elite for actually keeping the course going. So Bangladesh got itself locked in almost into selling garments to the world. You know, 95% of its exports are ready-made garments. They're a massive success. But it also means now they really can't allow the exchange rate to become overvalued, which actually means... You see very few Mercedes and BMWs on the streets of Bangladesh. You see very few Bangladeshi elites that can send their children to school to London or to Eton or to, to Harrow. You basically have these strong incentives to keep a competitive exchange rate, which means imports are expensive. And so it gives that in turn the incentives for its domestic economy to actually start doing things. So it's this power of actually being export-oriented therefore needing to keep a competitive exchange rate, so you need to sell abroad, that then has a further impulse on your domestic economy that you have actually an extra incentive to actually start producing things for your local markets because imports are expensive. So it's an old idea of export orientation, but actually it's a brilliant disciplining device for your elite. And I do think it matters for Nigeria because that's where it all the time goes on. Every time the old price goes up, you allow your exchange rate to become cheaper, you're basically to overvalue, so imports become cheaper. And every time that the price goes down, you have no way of correcting it. Mm -hmm. And so actually, we all the time do things in the interest of the elite. But actually, you know, I think my big idea in terms of policies is to really become much stricter on that. And the only way to do it is to really, if you do industrial policy, do it focused on some export products, trying to sell something else from Nigeria. I look forward to the day that I go and walk in a shop here and I see made in Nigeria. I would be mm. a very happy person because it's <laughs> a sign for me that actually you're getting closer to the development bargain in Nigeria. That's a good answer. We are trying our best here to make sure the right people understand that message because uh, Policy right now is captured by this idea of self-sufficiency. Uh, you see central bank governors and even industrialists saying, we have this 200 million 
population, a large internal market. You really don't need to sell anything to the world. So, yes. Yeah. And think of Bangladesh, it has 165 million people. Yeah, China has 1.3. It's obsessed with trying to sell to the world and it's looking yeah. for the next thing. Yeah. It's looking all the time for the next thing it can sell to the world. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much, Stefan, for doing this with me. It has been a thoroughly enjoyable experience for me personally. Thank you, Toby. Um, it's been very enjoyable for me too. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to the show on any of your favorite podcast vendors. That may be Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or any of the rest. Don't forget to rate us on your platform. It helps others find the show. Or you can just listen or download on our website, www.ideasuntrapped.com. 